Well, good morning, Gil. Um, it's very good to have the opportunity to be with you today. And really kind of looking forward to, to learning uh, about you and about the Veterans Administration's efforts in artificial intelligence. So thanks for being with us. Great, and, and thanks for uh, thanks for having me on the ATARC uh, Federal uh, IT uh, newscast. I really uh, appreciate uh, the opportunity to, to talk to you today. Well, thanks. Um, so Gil, getting right into it, give us a little bit of background about yourself, where you're from, how you got here, and, and what drives you um, in the Veterans Administration and in your pursuit of artificial intelligence as applied to uh, the VA's mission. Yes, yeah, so I, I think you know when um, thinking about um, the drive and and what are some of the things that really are motivating um, to me and to us really here at the National Artificial Intelligence Institute. Um, you know, we're thinking about uh, the the veterans, the mission of the VA, um, and how we can best help the veterans, their families, those around them, um, and. Uh, when looking at that, it, it turns out that there's a number of uh, new technologies, and one of them, artificial intelligence, uh, really stands out as something that can really make a big difference uh, from what we've seen in its application in other areas, other, um, other industries, and in, in academia. Um, I know in terms of my background, um, in the past, I'd worked on applying artificial intelligence in healthcare and and seeing how that can really make a difference for uh, patients. And so I uh, have been really excited that uh, we have this opportunity for this really special mission that the VA has to really make a difference. Okay. So you said there was something particular in advancement recently that was that was very intriguing to you. Can you give us a little more detail? Yeah, well, I think when we think about uh, artificial intelligence, it's been uh, kind of a, a journey essentially through time, right? Um, it's not something that um, I think you kind of almost think about almost like uh, life itself, right? You, you, it's not that, uh, you know, you uh, reached a certain goal necessarily at some point uh, and that's it, but you kind of evolve, you know, from being, uh, you know, a child to an adult, an older person and, and so forth. Uh, and in each time there's sort of different things that uh, come about that can give you uh, new insights, new capabilities. I think that's how it is with artificial intelligence. It's, um, there are certain moments when you sort of have this aha that kind of come up, but um, I think that uh, overall uh, it's kind of a cumulative uh, effective thing. So for example, um, in the last few years imaging, we've seen uh, artificial intelligence being able to have um, essentially superhuman capabilities in recognizing classifying images uh, and understanding, uh, you know, what they mean. And, and so that has a lot of uh, applications in uh, the healthcare area, uh, whether you're looking at diagnosing uh, cancer images, uh, looking at prognosis, uh, how well a patient will do over time, given a certain treatment uh, where you're using imaging to understand uh, what uh, that situation is. Uh, same thing with uh, with text processing. Have seen uh, some amazing capabilities uh, in that area as well. Uh, you know, starting to get toward the point where it is hard to tell the difference from uh, a human uh, and a uh, an artificial intelligence kind of a chat um, uh, kind of session there. And so that allows for a number of 
interactions that before uh, may not have been uh, possible. And so all of these are being driven by different technologies over time um, and different resource uh, capabilities that are being made available over time. So sometimes there's a dramatic uh, increase in a, like a new method, you know, whether it be like, for example, deep learning, uh, neural networks, you know, a few uh, decades ago um, that were kind of more, a little more simpler version of the deep learning that we have today. Uh, and then by uh, resources, uh, whether it be the, the competing resources that are getting faster uh, over time, uh, having more memory, uh, and the data itself. The data itself um, is really critical. Um, and there's some situations where just having a lot of data can actually lead to uh, great um, results in terms of being able to make predictions. There are other cases where you need not only data, but um, some of the newer uh, methods as well. And so there's a lot of different uh, variables to think about. Um, but I think the, the you know, the, the one that we're thinking about now is this, um, you know, that the, about AI adoption, right? Uh, that's kind of what we've been thinking about. So, and the, the road to AI adoption really goes through uh, these waypoints, um, as I mentioned, kind of like a journey, right? And trustworthy AI is really uh, an important part of the journey that we're at now. Uh, and and to, to get adoption, you it needs to be trusted, right? Once you get that, you open that gate, there are a lot more capabilities because you're able to adopt AI, try it in uh, different settings, and uh, ultimately be able to standardize uh, and develop processes where you're uh, looking at, uh, you know, increasing the accuracy. So right now, I think trust getting uh, AI to make sure that it's following the different uh, trustworthy principles. You know, we've got these nine uh, principles that we uh, worked on as part of the, um, uh, that we have as part of the uh, trustworthy AI uh, executive order uh, that's also encoded in the uh, national um, AI initiative act uh, that came out. Um, and that's kind of an important one uh, to really make sure that we have that to increase adoption. Um, after that, we're of course looking to make sure that, you know, we've got high accuracy, right? That's important. Um, and that it is better than the alternative, right? There's no really reason to implement something if it's not better than how things are being done now, unless it's better in some metric, you know, that metric, could be accuracy, it could be uh, cost savings, it could be, a, uh, ideally it's a combination of different factors. Uh, so those are the things being looked at now. So in specifics, how is artificial intelligence being deployed at the Veterans Administration? What kind of problems are you seeking to address? Um, what, I mean, what is the, uh, the, the primary foci of your efforts currently? Right, right. Um, so there's a, a number of things that we're uh, looking at. I think I kind of alluded to a couple of them. Uh, there have been a number of um, efforts looking into uh, how do you use it for, for imaging. Um, we, uh, in terms of overall use cases, we recently actually created a use case library uh, that we will soon um, uh, publish. Uh, there is an initial list already on um, on, on the website, basically www.va.gov slash guidance, uh, where we talk about how uh, we're using it for, we're looking at some of the priority use cases there. Um, but, you know, if you put them into categories, there are kind of these clinical use cases. 
there are these administrative use cases. So administrative, you know, I talked a little bit about the clinical before, um, but administrative uh, may be, for example, uh, to uh, make uh, certain uh, forms processing faster using natural language processing, having ways to submit forms in more automated ways, recognizing um, images and handwriting. So that way uh, it doesn't have to be manual typed in, um, having artificial intelligence um, uh, process uh, certain types of uh, uh, information and integrate different types of information together that can uh, help to uh, process, to help increase productivity essentially. Um, so that's kind of the other area. Um, and that may include areas that intersect with the clinical or the benefits or um, or the um, uh, the uh, cemetery administration. You know, there are different um, uh, different uh, parts of the VA that it can contribute to. Um, I think the key is that looking at where is the data that we could um, really leverage. Right, the VA has a lot of information that. Can be useful for its mission. You know, the largest integrated healthcare system in the country, um, over nine million veterans there, um, uh, being served with uh, you know healthcare uh, areas, uh, benefits, um, and uh, memorial services. Different types of uh, places where their interactions with a veteran, where uh, leveraging uh, the data that is underlying that, uh, can help. Uh, make uh, for better experiences, uh, can make for uh, results that uh, are, are faster um, and kind of improve uh, the outcomes uh, that we see uh, for the veterans and, and those around them. So are there specific processes uh, to the development of artificial intelligence algorithms or implementations at the VA? Is this happening exclusively in-house? Is there a uh, public-private partnerships or cross-agency partnerships? Right, right. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of different uh, ways that we're working on this. So I would say it's a combination of those, right? Um, each one has its strengths, uh, you know, its, its strengths, its uh, pluses, its minuses. Um, for example, you know, we're looking... You know, we've been looking at uh, part. You know, just give an example of partnerships. Uh, you know, potential partnerships. So one of the challenges there in the past has been around uh, contracting. You know, how do you make that uh, faster and more efficient? Uh, we've been looking at and using uh, things like AI tech sprints, which allow us to engage with industry over uh, a period of time, like uh, three months or so. Um, and during that time, uh, we can uh, work on shared data sets where they're working on different tools that, uh, that may be of interest to areas that are being worked on there. And, uh, and once uh, they have something, they can uh, show it and uh, compete in uh, different challenges that we have. So we had one recently, uh, we worked with challenge.gov um, and uh, as part of that uh, announced recently some uh, prizes for that. Um, and that's been a way that we can have a national competition that can then drive uh, potentially future contracts, because that is a way that we, because in contracts, you need to have a justification for having uh, the contract essentially uh, through some kind of a process uh, that is uh, uh, fair and equitable in the challenge.gov uh, and other types of ways that we work with AI Tech Sprint enable us to then be able to move 
a little more faster toward uh, contracts that are going to be uh, beneficial for uh, all sides and for the mission itself. Um, another, so that was around partnerships. So uh, there are also uh, these uh, cooperative research and development agreements. Uh, we had uh, a number of these uh, recently that led to a number of different um, research and development projects that are now bringing different um, models and so forth uh, that will be uh, useful um, as well. And um, in, in the health uh, related arena, uh, we uh, also try to bring uh, either both researchers, clinicians, and others uh, that to develop their uh, expertise in-house. Um, we have a, a program that we're working on to um, to be able to uh, increase capabilities in that area uh, by through funding and training. Uh, and then there's also areas that we're working on to bring people from the outside. Um, into government. Um, so building this AI network of uh, people from uh, outside the VA to bring them to within the VA, people that have this uh, expertise or have uh, both in AI and applying it to specific use cases. So we're looking at a multiple of different areas, um, kind of a multi-pronged approach and each one has its advantages, like I was alluding to a couple of them and disadvantages. So together we're able to take advantages of all the different pluses that each one of these uh, opportunities uh, affords us. That's really exciting. It's a, it's it's very uh, refreshing to see such a broad, uh, fully scoped approach to leveraging internal and external expertise. Um, I'm, I imagine that the response has has been pretty significant, uh, significantly positive, given as as you pointed out, the VA has uh, vast holdings of data, very diverse data sets, and very diverse missions. Everything from healthcare to benefits to administration to uh, even funeral services. It's uh, and, and the the age of that data, the longevity of that data is also really attractive. So not only do you have you know a large body, a large corpus of current data, but an opportunity to examine how uh, elements of that data have evolved over a span of decades, which can be extremely useful. I think a lot of times people think that you know an AI algorithm is born and suddenly it knows everything, but the truth is is it is uh, very often going to have to go through the same cognitive processes as any infant that transitions through maturation to being a, a functioning, thinking, aware uh, entity. So essentially, the more data you have, the more homework you're giving your AI to, to learn and, and improve upon. And when you have that, it, it, it allows you to develop a more robust algorithm that's, that's well suited to its purpose. Um, researchers that I've worked had the opportunity to work with at a number of companies always say that it's it's not it, more data is better. Uh, more the 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 key to success for a lot of uh, companies that have been able to successfully leverage AI is that they have vast quantities of data to train against. Um, Google is probably one of the most noteworthy, but certainly that's the scale of data we're talking about. It's it's petabytes, it's exabytes of data that can be processed. So that brings in challenges and in infrastructure as, as well. Uh, it's, it's very, very difficult to work with huge quantities of data just from the, the, the data gravity and the data velocity problems. Um, 
when you have tens of thousands of instances of an algorithm trying to train against massive diverse data sets, just the bandwidth alone becomes a huge challenge. And there are very few organizations that have that kind of infrastructure available to them. So the benefit to government is very often the infrastructure is large, but there's also the opportunity to leverage other infrastructure. So it sort of begs the question of you know, what, um, what model of infrastructure are you using with the VA? Is it predominantly on-premises or is it hybrid or is it entirely in the public cloud or is it combinations of all of the above? How are you finding it most effective to do the uh, data triage and cleanup, the training, and then ultimately deploying into uh, the mission environment or the, the application environment for, the, uh, for that particular algorithm or use case. Right, right. So there are a number, uh, so like the um, approaches that we've been using uh, for um, for working on with, you know, AI, working on partnerships and so forth and all that, the same kind of thing we're doing also around the infrastructure, right? So, uh, for example, there's uh, the VA data commons uh, piloting work that's going on, which involves uh, working with uh, a, a portion outside of the VA, essentially, uh, as a um, as a cloud-based environment, right? Um, and then there's approaches where we're leveraging uh, GovCloud uh, within uh, the VA uh, to work with uh, people, you know, within the VA. Uh, there are... Um, other environments uh, that are kind of smaller on-prem based environments uh, as well for specialized data, like uh, genomic data analysis uh, that are uh, available for doing analysis. Um, and so there's, you know, there's a combination. I, I want to get to the point, you know, that you were asking or that you were discussing before. I thought it was quite interesting about, you know, when you have a lot of data and it's longitudinal, you know, you also want to think about, you know, that affects also the infrastructure and so forth that you'll be using as well. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's interesting, you know, you get a billion new images a year, you know, those are stored somewhere. How do you, uh, you know, in, in, when you have developed AI models, how do you kind of integrate um, all those images? Just imagine how many images are coming in, you know, every day, you've got a billion new ones every year, right? How do you make sure that you can, um, you know, plan for uh, such a future where uh, that can be done. And um, and it, it's so it's not only that there's a lot of data there right now, but there's a lot of data coming in. And so the models um, may learn something, you know, that is relevant now. And that actually may change, uh, you know, in just a little bit of time. You know, if you're looking at, uh, you know, intensive care unit data, as you get more data, your predictions may change, right? Um, we've seen this actually with COVID-19. We uh, had developed a model using some data, you know, from some of the first waves. Then, you know, there are different treatments, there are different types of variants, different things that came out. And uh, the model, uh, essentially, the model performs much better if it then, if it learns, adapts to those things that happened over time, right? And so I think one of the great capabilities and, and unique aspects is not only having a lot of information, but having uh, access to um, you know, either real-time or near real-time information so that those models can be updated and you can provide the latest and essentially greatest uh, types of models to understand what are the different variables, right? And you, you look at like explainable 
AI and uh, and and be able to see and uh, and work with people to understand. Uh, oh well, this is what changed in the model over time, and this is potentially why that is, and could that be something that would affect how we think about care or um, uh, attacking different types of problems? So it's it's quite interesting uh, to be able to to have that aspect as well, where you keep learning from the data sets that are changing quite rapidly over time, right? Um, you know, unlike some, you know, data sets that don't really change, um, you know, th these are data sets that uh, evolve and are changing based on different circumstances. Right. There's certainly the aspect of data changes because the things we can know um, evolve over time as well. You know, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, if you'd asked somebody to, to describe DNA, there was no means by which to validate it. We couldn't see it. Now we've mapped the human genome and we know that um, exquisitely. So that will change a model. It changes our cognitive understanding of our, our subject area or of the universe. The same thing happens with artificial intelligence as well. What can be known and processed becomes apparent to us. And that's going to have an impact on what we, what we want an algorithm to adapt to or what an algorithm will decide to adapt to. Yeah, Digital I, imagery was not widespread 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Now it is. Yes, uh, I think actually, yeah. Oh, good. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I think what's interesting is that now, I think in the past, it was kind of like a one-way conversation, you know, it's like, uh, and that's been changing. So like in the past, it'd be like, we're teaching AI, right? And uh, AI then comes up, you know, and maybe makes a summary or, and many times we didn't actually learn something new, but what it did, it was it kind of created a summary uh, or put together information that, um, that, you know, it would require many people to look at that uh, information over a long period of time and it just made it faster or more efficient. But, you know, if you look at some of the results in the last couple of years uh, where uh, artificial intelligence is having superhuman capabilities in some areas, you know, like in some areas of imaging, we're actually learning new things from artificial intelligence itself right. that, that none of us knew. Like you could you could have asked anyone and they would not, you know, it's not a matter of like, we didn't read enough information. Uh, you know, it's able to, there were findings around the types of uh, cells that were in the, in the periphery and the inside of, of uh, cancer tumors that were essentially discovered by artificial intelligence. We're seeing right. patents being given to uh, our discussions about patents in different countries being, should it be given to artificial intelligence for making that discovery? So we're really in a new era uh, where it brings a number of questions that we want to think, you know, we're thinking about, you know, whether it be around trustworthy AI and other things that once we're, you know, we're, we're dealing, you know, they're being dealt with right now, you know, in terms of uh, some of these things that I mentioned. Uh, and so um, it's, it's, it's really an exciting time, I think, because uh, we're learning new things. And I see the future as a more, a potentially more collaborative kind of a human and uh, computer interaction um, where uh, it may be more like a conversation. More, not like, uh, you know, us telling the AI do this and then it does something, but, you know, we may tell and uh, say, you know, how about trying this out? Look at this. It may say, oh, okay, that's interesting. 
can you tell me more about this other aspect and maybe then I'll investigate more, kind of like how you might work with, uh, work with a colleague, right? Um, and, uh, you know, when you work with a colleague, one of the most important things is that you trust them, right? Um, and so that's kind of one of the things that kind of is being worked on. And once you have that, um, you can have conversations and, and uh, be able to trust the what they are reporting, you know, I would say right now we'd want to verify, of course, everything, and uh, it's a it's a time we're in, in this uh, special time, and of course, having the human kind of in the loop is always going to be important for uh, most of these areas. Uh, but um, it's an it's a it's a, it's a unique time, I think, that uh, to look at the capability, the possibilities that these capabilities are going to enable us to have. So the, the, we are indeed in uh, interesting and exciting times. And there have been tremendous advancements in artificial intelligence and augmentation of human cognition. But what do you see some of the current challenges in this area are? Um, and how are you seeking to address them? How are you going forward from here? Right. So I think there are kind of specifically AI challenges. There are specifically challenges around AI in health uh, and, and places where you have uh, kind of... Uh, identify, you know, personal identifiable kind of information, not always in health, it could be other areas, financial, other areas as well, administrative data. Um, and then uh, there's sort of general data challenges, right? So, um, you know, when you look at uh, data, just, you know, sharing data um, is, is kind of an area that is, is a challenge sometimes. It, it could be a challenge uh, to share data outside the agency, uh, for certain purposes, you know, between agencies, uh, within different agencies, you know, just that uh, idea of, of sharing data as seamlessly as possible, while, of course, the most important thing being able to maintain the privacy and uh, to ensure the security of uh, the, the resources uh, there so that um, we're, we're doing the right thing uh, in terms of uh, protecting that information. You know, that's a kind of a, a challenge there. Um, and it's important for artificial intelligence because all those models are really built on that data. Uh, those models essentially uh, encode that data in a certain way. Um, and so uh, being able to make sure to protect that data is really, really important. Um, now, when you get into the health, uh, certain financial administrative areas, you have identifiable uh, information potentially. And so uh, there are challenges in like methods of how you de-identified in such a way that um, it cannot be uh, re-identified. Um, uh, and so those are some challenges in terms of like finding methods to do that or uh, building uh, new their new artificial their new approaches like privacy preserving AI which essentially allow you to work with the data without having to uh, see the underlying uh, data itself like the model does not see directly the underlying uh, data the way it's encrypted um, and so there are ways that are being looked at to address that challenge as well um, and then as I mentioned there are kind of some specific things to artificial intelligence that are challenges. So I think one way, best way to give this is to potentially like an example. So um, there are, you know, right now as of, you know, really just a couple of years ago, there, there are ways where artificial intelligence can, uh, can have a voice that sounds so real that it, 
to many people, they won't be able to, uh, to most people, they won't be able to, to really know if it's a human that is calling them on the phone or a, you know, an AI agent essentially, right? And so this has been implemented in some settings like where um, not in the VA or within government, but it, you know, it's, it's from what I understand, it's been implemented in some industry settings and, you know, in other cases as well, where the AI agent is making phone calls to people, right? Uh, to accomplish a, a task and make it more um, kind of more, uh, essentially optimal in terms of, you know, saving time and, and cost savings and things like that. Um, and uh, the person on the other side may not know that it's not a human. Is that, you know, there are questions about that that people are raising. Um, should that be something where it's identified? Uh, should it be transparent and, and, and that human informed that on the other side of the phone it is a AI agent and not a human, you know, you might think, well, maybe, you know, if you are getting what's, you know, kind of sometimes called a robocall or something, you might deal with it differently than if you think it's a human where you might give it more time and not want to kind of uh, hang up quickly or, you know, or interact with it in a way uh, that, uh, you know, depending on, you know, not affecting uh, the feelings of the person rather than the feelings of, you know, potential feelings of, of you know, the AI agent. Um, and so there are different ways that people may interact with a person rather than uh, a robocall. You know, this is just an example of the kinds of things that we're seeing um, uh, that AI can do and that we want to think about uh, and challenges in terms of how do we want to deal with that before potentially implementing something like that. And, that, you know, that was one example. There are many things people talk about or people have seen with deep fakes and others. You're making a movie that represents a person, um, you know, how to deal with that, working with that person to ensure that, um, you know, would they want to do that or not and, and how to represent different concepts. Those are all the kinds of things that are unique to AI, not to the underlying necessarily data, but to sort of that AI human kind of um, uh, interface and and, uh, and understanding of how kind of humanity is, is going to deal with artificial intelligence. It's a, these are all challenges that are uh, being looked into. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's we're right now kind of at that interface, at that pioneering moment when these things are, are starting to come out as, as options that need to be examined, whereas a few years ago, they just weren't there. You know, if someone is making a call, you can easily have recognized that it's not a human, for example, or if you see a, a movie clip, you could have obviously told that, you know, it was someone kind of stitched something together. Mm -hmm. Well, Gil, I want to thank you very much uh, for your time, your insights, and the enthusiasm uh, that you bring to the topic area. And, and thank you very much for your efforts in, in coming from academia into the public sector to the Veterans Administration to help guide and spearhead uh, the AI efforts of the Veterans Administration and coordinating that across other government agencies as well. You've had a, a very long and illustrious career uh, in academia and in this field of research, and I think we're very fortunate to have you. If you have anything that you want to provide in parting comments, we're very, I'm sure, surely very eager to hear them. Well, Nick, you know, I just want to say it's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much to you, to the ATARC Federal IT Newscast uh, for uh, starting this series. Um, really excited to see kind of the next ones that are coming up. And uh, I think it's really, uh, was, you know, really great idea to kind of have these where you, you kind of focus one-on-one -on -one and get to know different people. And 
um, you know, really excited about uh, the future in this field overall, you know, because uh, it can really, you know, make a big difference for um, the uh, the mission uh, that we're looking at. It's, uh, I, I know it can be useful for other missions as well. We've been interacting with a number of uh, different agencies um, and with, uh, with industry, with others uh, in this area. And, uh, you know, some of the things that, you know, when you, you see them uh, coming out, uh, you know, it, it takes two, three, you know, more years to develop it. And so right now we're seeing things develop that are just really fascinating. I'm just, you know, looking forward and really um, excited to see the day when, when these uh, technologies are going to make a, a, a difference directly to the, to the, the people that we're uh, working to serve. So, yeah, thank you very much again and uh, great to be here. Uh, thank you, Gil. And once again, uh, thank you all for joining us on the ATAR Federal IT Newscast. And our thanks to Kirsten Patton for putting all of this together. You have a wonderful day, and we'll see you again soon.